the privilege of coming and celebrating together the good news of Christ. Lord, I love this line. Tell it to the masses that he is God. What a beautiful truth, Lord, that we have the opportunity to do just that. Lord, that not only have you given us a grand message, you have given us a testimony to share with those around us that they can hear about the power of the God who is able to save. And Father, as we approach a testimony given by one who is highly esteemed in the scriptures, as we approach the incredible phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, I pray that each and every one of us this morning would have that heart and that mind to have our eyes fixed on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, as we come, I ask that you would accompany the preaching of your word with the power of the Spirit. Lord, to apply these truths to our life. Lord, it's not my job to make application. That's the operation of the Holy Spirit, and I trust it. So, Father, as we come, we ask you to do a great work in our hearts. Lord, to sanctify the saint. And if there be any here who do not know Jesus, Lord, that they would hear the good news of the gospel, repent and believe in Christ and gladly go from this place proclaiming the beauty of the one who is able to rescue us from sin. It is in the name of Christ Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have, uh, over the past couple of weeks, taken a brief pause Um, from the book of John, and we've been walking through the Christ of Christmas, hitting a couple of verses. Um, Primarily, John 1.14 was the launching pad that we had from that, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Christ of Christmas. We looked at the one who was going to come, and He was going to save His people from their sin. We looked at the one, the Christ who would come, He would condescend to man, that He would take on on the, this form of a servant that he would deal with the needs of a creature that he would have um, that he would even have the need of people caring for him, parents loving him, feeding him. And then we took that all the way forward looking to the cross of Christ because for, um, for us to celebrate the manger, for us to celebrate the incarnation free from celebrating the cross, we've made a grave error. Um, The point of celebration of Christ is celebrating the fact that he has actually come to rescue and redeem us from our sin. And so we find ourselves back in the book of John. John chapter 1 verse 19 is where we will be this morning. Um, And so as we lead into that, I want to kind of make a a brief introduction to the topic because um, we're going to talk about some things that we're all very familiar with, I would assume. Perhaps you've heard someone ask you, hey, could you share your testimony with me? Um, it, it's, it's almost, a, at this point, a, a Christianese terminology where we want to, like if I ask you your testimony, ultimately what I'm asking you is tell me about how you came to know Jesus and what he's done in your life. Now, um, when I was growing up, I was required to give my testimony at six years old um, to my pastor before I could be baptized. I think this is a great practice. Um, even when we baptize people here at Mercy Hill Church, we baptize them. Um, and, and when we do that, we read off the testimony that they wrote to so the whole congregation can celebrate together what Christ has done in their life. And we can watch them take that next step of faith in baptism. Now, at this point in my life, I was six years old and I was asked to give my testimony. I wasn't completely sure of what that meant, but um, as I talked to the pastor there, he walked me through what my testimony should be. Um, that, and my testimony was something very similar to this. It was, so I was at vacation Bible school and the pastor made, uh, made a statement that if you want to be saved, come down the aisle. So I walked down the aisle. As I came down, the pastor essentially read me this prayer and I prayed it back and so I was saved. Now, 
All of those things can be true. They can be true. As a six-year-old, I could have walked down the aisle. I could have prayed that prayer, and the Lord could have saved me in that moment. I found out later on in my life that simply was not the case. Um, it was 15 years old when I came to know Christ, and my testimony changed dramatically. It went from something like, I did all these things to Jesus saved me. Um, and I want you to notice the difference in the language here. A testimony should be centered on the one who rescues, not the one who was rescued. Um, As we consider our testimonies, each and every one of us have the exact same testimony. Perhaps it plays out a little bit different in your life, but ultimately each and every one of us who are in Christ, our testimony lines up perfectly with what we find in Ephesians 2. Each of us have that grand testimony. And so this morning, as we look at this passage in John chapter 1, we're going to look at the testimony of John the Baptist, and hopefully from looking at that, we will have some greater clarity in how our testimony should sound as we push that forward. And so um, we're going to break this up into two ways. Um, We're going to break it up into two sections. And I look, I also know that traditionally I go through like three verses at a time and we're looking at verses 19 through 34. Everyone take a deep breath. Um, It's not like I'm going to go through this passage the same way I walk through John chapter one verses like one and two. All right. So it's not going to be a six hour sermon. You're welcome. And uh, so with that being said, we're going to look at this in two different categories. First, uh, the first thing we'll look at is this encounter that John has or John's encounter with the Pharisees and with the Levites and the priests. The second part we will look at is John's confession and testimony. So with that being said, let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And, the, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is, the, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the privilege of your word this morning. We're grateful for the testimony of John the Baptist. We're grateful for his faithfulness um, to to boldly proclaim the Christ that came to rescue and redeem and Lord, making so, so little of himself in the midst of this. And so Lord, as we come, Lord, may it be that we walk out of this place celebrating this testimony of John, that this is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we leave this place, may our testimony be the same. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray, amen. Um, so 
what we're going to look at real quickly, just to kind of give you the sermon in a sentence. I, I love that we do this just because I want to make sure that everybody has a clear direction in where we're going. So the sermon in a sentence is this, and I'm going to tell you this time we have two sermons in a sentence, and the last one will come in at the end. It's not two sermons, it's just two sermons in a sentence. It's, it'll be all right. Um, so uh, the sermon in a sentence is this, John's testimony is centered on the on the only one who has the authority to take away the sin of the world and baptize with the Holy Spirit. His testimony is centered on the only one who has the authority to take away the sin of the world and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you why this is the sermon in a sentence. Because all throughout this passage, you're going to see a common theme of authority. Um, the Pharisees come essentially exercising their authority to question John. John's authority is questioned, and then John's appeal is to his actual authority, making no claim of authority in and of himself, instead placing all the authority that he has on the one that is actually coming into the world that will take away sin. So as we look at this encounter, um, the first thing I want to point out is in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, um, because what we have in this situation is the ministry of John is growing very rapidly. I mean, if you consider um, the ministry that John was given in verses 6 through 8, we see this very clear. This is a God-given um, influence that he has given to John. In verse 6, it says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, um, I want to point out something here real quickly. Uh, I've, I've made reference to this multiple times that the introduction to John is perhaps one of the most theologically dense passages in all of Scripture. It's very, very interesting that John gets a quote here. I mean, if you consider everything that we read in here is about the coming Messiah, and then all of a sudden we take this brief pause to make reference to John the Baptist. And listen to what it says about him. There was a man sent from God, so we know this about John. He was actually sent from God. This is where his authority actually lies. So in the coming moments, when we look at his authority being questioned, those of us who have read the scriptures know John has all authority. He was sent from God. It's the same way we consider the apostles having authority. They were sent from Christ, and thereby we trust their words and their teaching. So he was sent from God to bear witness. He came as a witness. Now, consider this type of ministry taking place in Jerusalem in these days. What you have essentially is this compare and contrast between the Pharisees, those who have a claim to some type of authority via their own self-righteousness and intellect and perhaps even the fact that the people are recognizing them as having some type of authority. And then you have this guy out um, hanging out in the wilderness covered in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. We can all agree this is a strange bird. Um, you can imagine as they're looking at this guy, they're seeing influence grow really rapidly for him. He's teaching something called repentance that really you hear people talk about in the Old Testament. You hear, um, you hear them making reference to maybe the people outside the camp, but the Pharisees didn't really like the doctrine of repentance because they thought that they pretty much had it all together. They themselves were self-righteous, and if you would like to frustrate a self-righteous individual, um, you simply come preaching the doctrine of repentance. Because it means by necessity we have to admit that we have fault. That we have some type of sin that needs to be dealt with. So John's ministry is growing. It's growing rapidly due to the influence that God had given him. It goes on. The priests and Levites came from the Pharisees. So in verse 19 you see this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? On down a little bit further in verse 24 it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. 
So we see this idea of him raising an influence and the Pharisees immediately think to themselves, we have to deal with this. There are two ways the Pharisees could have dealt with this and I'm convinced this is why they sent, him to question, they sent these people to question John. We either bring him into our fold and allow him to come under our authority and we use him essentially for our own gain, which is certainly one type of uh, option. And then the second one is we snuff this thing out right here. Because he is growing in influence, teaching repentance. And he's looking at even Pharisees, people who say they have it all together and saying, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and turn toward the coming Messiah. They've got to figure something out to do with this guy. Because he's causing all types of strife because he's coming in and he's even instituting this new thing that's called baptism of repentance. And that's the major reason they come and they question him. So it goes on and it says this, the priest and Levites came from the Pharisees to, they, excuse me, the priests and Levites came from the Pharisees. They ultimately came, the confrontation was centered on his intrinsic authority. So looking back at this testimony, looking back at the questions that are asked of him. So if you look into verse 19, going all the way through verse 22, it says this, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? In verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, and he answered, no. So let's just talk right there real quickly. Now, John has a great opportunity here. John can essentially make a claim to authority that simply says, I am sent from God and I actually am the Elijah that you've been thinking about. Not the one that you thought was gonna come. I'm not the Elijah reincarnated. I'm not the Elijah descending from heaven, but I am the Elijah mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, you would have to assume that the Pharisees, even with with them being pretty well acquainted with the Old Testament writings, if he came claiming to be Elijah, that would either, that would give him an incredible, incredible amount of authority. I mean, an incredible amount of authority. He simply needed to make reference to this. And all of a sudden they would have had to deal with this in a very different manner because he's claiming to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Therefore, we should pretty much bow to essentially everything he's doing because his purpose is actually to make straight the way of the Lord. And so they come confronting him on his intrinsic authority. And what is most interesting about this is instead of taking the opportunity to exalt himself, immediately what he does is is bring himself to a lower position. Now, I do love real quickly just to make this make a point here. In verse 20, they come asking him a question and he very much in almost a Jesus-like manner answers their question before they actually ask the real question. They come and say, who are you? And John responds, I am not the Christ. Now, I wanna point out this language to you because it's a bit interesting. In verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Now, it is interesting, isn't it? Because they're essentially asking him if he's the Christ and it would, it, he's actually making a denial. I am not the Christ. His confession here is his denial. He is essentially doing exactly what God had called him to do, to point not to himself, but to point to the coming Messiah. And in his confessing, I am not the Christ, ultimately what he was doing is saying, there's gonna come a moment where I'm gonna point out the Christ to you and you're going to see him in full. And so the very first thing you see him do is take the opportunity to humble himself in all of these questions that are asked to him. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And then he asked, are you Elijah? Now this is the one that's most interesting to me. Because like I mentioned previously, he had absolute right to say, yes. I am the, Jesus called, this is the Elijah that, that the Old Testament attests to. This is the one that came to make straight the way of the Lord. And even as he continues to speak in verse 23, when he actually is required to give an answer about who he is, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
I love what, I love what John does here. The only thing he says about himself is what the scripture says about him. Literally, the only thing he has to say about himself is exactly what God had already spoken concerning him. I mean, it's an incredible picture of, his, of this, this encounter where he says, I, I'm not here to make anything of myself. I know that there are people that are beginning to follow me. I know that this baptism of repentance is growing, but I, this is not about me at all. The only thing I have to say concerning myself is that I am under the authority of the scriptures and I am under the authority of the one who sent me. My only authority is the one who sent me. And I will make myself very, very small so that when he arrives, you may see how grand he actually is. And so not only does he do that in verse 19 through 23 where he humbles himself, places himself at a lower position, but also in verse 27. I love this. Uh, Verse 26 and 27, John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, essentially what he's saying here is I'm not fit to be a servant or a slave in this guy's house. The Messiah who's coming I'm not worthy to even stoop down to the lowest position before him to untie his shoe for him. And, and, and consider this for just a moment. We're going to deal with this in a little bit, but I can't help but take a brief pause. Um, we naturally, in our testimonies, in the things that we say about ourselves, are more prone to make much of ourselves than to make little. Would we agree in that? Anytime we tell a story, anytime we are in a story, we always make ourselves the protagonist of the story. We always make ourselves some way, shape, form, or fashion look a little bit better. John doesn't do that. Instead, he places himself arguably even lower than he actually is. God has given him a unique position. God has sent him to be the messenger, to herald in the coming of the Messiah, to bring about this doctrine of repentance that all of Israel might see the Messiah and be saved when he arrives. But ultimately, he says, I'm not worthy to untie the Messiah Messiah's shoe. He makes such a small case of himself. And I love this about John because John has an incredible amount of authority. He can come and he can do all of these things. He can, he can come proclaiming these things. Yes, is he actually unworthy to even be a servant of the Lord? Yes, he is. And so are we. But he doesn't make much of himself in any way at all. But then let's look at how ultimately why they're coming to attack him. They're coming to attack him because of his baptism. John chapter one, verse 25 says this. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? So they come, they assault his authority. He refuses to give a defense to his authority. And then they come and they say, then why are you baptizing? You have absolutely no intrinsic authority to do this. You know, you, you know when people do not have authority, it's easy to question them. I remember my very first, this was a terrible day. My very first day um, of student ministry, I was 19 years old. I walked up to the, to the office and it was VBS week, first day, praise the Lord. And um, so I, as I walk up, the lady in charge of VBS says, hey, who are you? Because I was a stranger. And she said, and, and she said oh, you're the new youth pastor. Wonderful. Well, here, I've got some kids that are being very unruly. Will you please go watch them? And I'm thinking to myself, I have no authority here. Like I literally just walked in the door And so I can say whatever I want to to these kids, but ultimately they don't recognize my authority, so why should they be obedient to me anyway? And so because there was no lack of authority, I can say whatever I want to them, they can disregard it in full. Ultimately, what these Pharisees are doing is coming in, usurping the authority of John and saying, if you have no authority, no one should listen to what you're saying anyway. You're not the prophet, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah. Why then, under what authority are you baptizing? The purpose of this is not to attack baptism. The purpose of this is to attack repentance. 
goes back to that idea of the Pharisees being these incredibly self-righteous people that if someone comes in telling people their need to repent and trust in one who is able to save, all of a sudden you realize you can't save yourself and your self-righteousness, regardless of how pretty you may seem, we say, with what, we say what Jesus did, your whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside, you've got a pretty headstone. It's harsh language. And the Pharisees did not take kindly to this. They didn't take kindly to his growth, to his influence, and they didn't take kindly to the baptism and the repentance that he was teaching them. And so what then is his response? Well, he continued doing it because God's called him to that. He bows to a higher authority. And so as he's teaching this doctrine of repentance, he, um, he, he continues, he presses on, and ultimately what happens here is they walk away from this circumstance, going back to give this answer. And I can imagine as the Pharisees hear this, um, either they're thinking to themselves when they hear, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Either they think to themselves, that was the Elijah, you silly folks, which I doubt they did because they were so blinded to their own self-righteous agenda. And so because they refused to bow to his authority, ultimately they find themselves at a loss. Now, as I take a pause here real quickly, I want to point out to you just the basic thing that we've seen here. In this encounter, John had every opportunity to attest to his own authority. John had every opportunity to attest to the one, or to attest to his own, um, his own ability, his own sending, ultimately to make much of himself in this moment. Now, I think John walked through this, I mean, to the extent perfectly. What you see here is when John is speaking of himself, he says almost nothing. I mean, you look at the answers he gives. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? I am not. I am not the Christ. He makes the simplest statements possible. He does not speak much of himself at all. Now, I want to show you the transition that takes place here. Because as John's being questioned about himself, he's incredibly quiet. He's there to do what God has called him to do, to teach a baptism of repentance. But then we shift into this next moment. And this is where John's confession actually comes in. This is John's testimony. And it's found immediately following in verse 29. We see this grand shift in him. In verse 29, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is an interesting transition because just a moment ago, he was pretty quiet. Yesterday, he was a pretty quiet guy. And all of a sudden, John begins to herald this to the point of great boldness. And remember how much John was making little of himself? Who was he doing that in front of? Was it just the Pharisees, the Levites, and the priests, those who were sent? Or was it also his own students? Because they would have all been there. They were gathering at Bethany, as you find in verse 28. It says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Traditionally, this would have been a pretty high traffic area. And then in light of John's baptism, you would watch as many people would gather there. All those who John had influence over would be there to hear his teaching, to see people be baptized into the baptism of repentance. That, that This would be a grand opportunity. And so instead of making much of himself, he looks at all of his students and he says, I know how great you think I am. I know how wonderful you think I am. I know that you love the baptism that I'm teaching you. I know that you think that I am sent from God and ultimately he was, but I want you to understand in contrast to the one who's coming, I am lower than dirt. Now, the reason he does this is because in just a couple of moments, He's going to look out and he's going to see the Lamb of God who's able to take away the sin of the world. And all of his students who, he, who had been following him faithfully are going to see this is the one who is even greater than John. This is the one who is far better. He's incredible. He's so much higher and more glorious and more righteous that John doesn't even feel like he can untie his shoe. And so we see this grand shift, but it all had a purpose. 
The purpose of him not making much of himself was not because he simply wanted to make himself lowly. It was because when Christ came, he wanted the entire glory, the entire focus to be fixed on the one who is indeed higher. And I want you to hear this language, and this prompts a a story of uh, one of my favorite stories. Uh, Just this verse, and I'll be honest, I did everything I could not to just preach on verse 29. But on verse 29, it says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John looks out and he sees this. It it immediately makes me think of uh, Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon would go and preach places in a day and time where we didn't have amplification. Um, To be a preacher, you ultimately had to be God-given the voice to do it. And so uh, Charles Spurgeon went into the place that he would be preaching, and it was him alone in there with a janitor someone just cleaning up and to test the acoustics so that he could figure out how to most, most effectively project his voice. He came and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said it over and over again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shortly after that, as he's, um, as he's walking down off the stage, the janitor comes up to him weeping. And he comes up and he says, tell me of this Lamb that can take away the sin of the world. This phrase, this verse is the grand proclamation to each and every soul that salvation is possible through the coming Messiah. The reason John made himself low is because Christ was the only one worthy of worship and praise. And so when we get to this point, all of a sudden John begins to speak these great truths. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you would, I'd like to walk through this passage rather quickly with you. Just these few phrases, behold the Lamb of God. First and foremost, when you consider the people that would be gathered around um, John at this point, most of them would be Jewish people. And shortly after this time, the Passover would take place. And so everyone had on their mind a lamb, the Paschal lamb. And so when John looks out and he makes this profession, behold the lamb of God, he's ultimately proclaiming to everyone around them that this is actually the true lamb. This is the one who has come that will actually be able to take away sin. Not like the day of atonement takes away sin for just a small period of time. Instead, it is a true lamb who actually has the authority to take away sin in full. Behold the lamb of God. Now, then it goes on to add who takes away sin. John's been teaching a baptism of repentance. Repent from your sin. But ultimately, John cannot offer them the removal of their sin. John cannot convert. John cannot take on the sin of the world. John cannot pay for one of his own sins because they are due an eternal amount of the wrath of God. So when John looks out and proclaims, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, every single ear would have immediately perked up and thought, You've been teaching us repentance, but you're telling me this man is able to actually remove my sin from me? My guilt will be done away with? My shame, the consequence, the the presence of sin, and ultimately the power of sin will be done away with in this Lamb of God? They would have rejoiced at this. Yes, perhaps some would have been concerned, and as we'll find in chapter 3, there were some who were a bit jealous that that Jesus' ministry was growing past John's. But nonetheless, this proclamation is one that professes this is the true Lamb of God who is coming into the world to rescue and redeem the lost. And then it goes on to actually say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You wonder how many Gentiles were around that day. Have you considered, we look at this and the Jewish people, even at this point, were convinced that the one who would come would ultimately just save the Jewish people from their sin, probably more so than not because of a a failure to understand the Old Testament properly. It was very clear that the Messiah who would come would redeem not only the sons of Jacob, but the whole world. And when when John makes this proclamation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you wonder how many, many Gentiles around that place thought, even me? Even me, I'm outside of the covenant people. 
yes, I'm a God-fearer, but I, I need redemption. I, I need sh- uh, blood shed for me. This proclamation is one that is great. It is one that is powerful and authoritative. And so John comes gladly and boldly pointing out the Messiah. Secondly, John pointed out the authority of Christ. Now, this is the first time that he makes reference to any real authority. And he does this in verse 30. He says, I myself did not know him. I'm sorry, excuse me. In verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He is making reference to the fact that it's very clear Jesus is a bit younger than John. And he's saying, the one who came after me, yes, he was born of woman after me, but nonetheless, he ranks before me. He has true and all authority. For, for, for anyone to say this, it ultimately means that the one that we're thinking of, that we're meditating on, that we're looking at here, this, he's not new here. He's not 30 years old. He's the ancient of days that we would find in, in the book of Daniel. He is the son of God, the eternal begotten monogenes. And so when John is making this play, he's essentially saying, this is the one who, yes, he came after me, but he is before me because he is actually the eternal God who is able to rescue and redeem the lost. He appeals to his authority. This is the very first time that John appeals to any authority at all. The only other authority he's appealed to is the authority of the word of God. And now he's appealing to the authority of the incarnate word. He is making reference to the fact that all authority of mine is granted to me by Christ, who is the ultimate authority. And so as we look at this, we see that John pointed out the Messiah boldly, that John pointed out the authority of Christ. And then we see this in John 1, 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And the beauty of this is John's, entire heartbeat behind the entirety of his ministry has been to do one thing and one thing only. Yes, he's teaching a baptism of repentance, but his great hope is that all of Israel and that all the world would know Christ when he came. The entirety of his life, everything about his ministry, watching people come, repent, be baptized, the whole purpose of that is so that Israel might know and be saved. Their entire life is centered around this one thing. It is completely and totally centered around making Christ known. This is the testimony of John. John's testimony is one that is not incredibly elaborate. It is not even, like when we consider it, there's not a bunch of intricacies to it. It's I want to make Christ known. People need to know the Son of God when he arrives. I will proclaim him boldly when he arrives, but throughout the entirety of my ministry and my life, I am pointing to one and one only because he is the only one worthy of worship and praise. And so John's baptism revealed Christ to Israel. Now, the last thing that John points out is this. Uh, This is in uh, John 1, verse 33 through 34. John pointed to Christ for a better baptism. This is perhaps one of the greatest and clearest pictures of a shadow to a substance. You've heard me make reference to the fact that we look at things like the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a shadow of the true one that would come and dwell with us, and Christ is its substance. We even look at marriage, perhaps this is the best way to illustrate it. The marriages that we enjoy here on the earth, they are, by God's grace, a shadow, and the marriage of the lamb to his church is the substance. We experience this thing. They're glorious, they're good, but ultimately they're meant to point us to the true and better substance that is in Christ. In the exact same way, John comes baptizing with a baptism of repentance and he looks out on all of his students and he says this. And John bore witness 
This is verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is, again, another appeal to authority, saying this one has the ability to send the Holy Spirit. That's genuine authority. The authority to say of the Holy Spirit, indwell my people. Be, cover them, rescue them, regenerate them, sanctify them. This is the one who is coming. This is the Lamb of God who would give the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to make a point here because I feel like it's a, it's a frustration of mine. This is not metaphorical, by the way. The Holy Spirit indwelling the saints is not metaphorical. It's not some idea of, yes, the Holy Spirit is kind of this thing that, is, that empowers you. That's true, but do not ever forget that it actually does indwell you. We have lost so much beauty in the church because we do not depend or rely on the power of the Spirit. We're far more prone to depend on our own intellect, which fails frequently, by the way. Our own power, our own authority, you have none. Take a lesson from John here. John's heartbeat, his authority, everything that he did was centered around bowing to the authority of the one that God has given. And in the exact same way, we as saints should gladly bow to the authority of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Allow it to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Allow it to guide, to teach, to train. It speaks very clearly that it will lead us into all truth. And so, secondly, he points to a better baptism. Now, the question is, where do we go from here? We've looked at all these things about John, who he is, what he's proclaimed, that he has proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we consider sermons or any type of teaching at Mercy Hill Church, we ask three questions. What is this going to do in me? Is it going to grow me in steadfast love? Is it going to grow me in knowledge of God? Or is it going to grow me in faithfulness? I'm going to go ahead and tell you that my intent is to grow you in faithfulness this morning. Because testimony should not be centered on the recipient of grace. Testimony should be centered on the giver of grace. And we have done a great disservice to not only ourselves, but to our hearers when our testimonies, the things that we teach, are not centered on the one who rescued and redeemed us. We should speak very little of ourselves, and anything we do say about ourselves should ultimately place us to a lower place. Friends, you do no one a favor when you explain to someone why you were savable before Jesus saved you. You weren't. unmerited favor. Not just unmerited favor, but grace actually extends past that. Grace is the idea that you have waged war against the one who longs to rescue you, and he, by his love and compassion, rescues you nonetheless. You see, John could have made himself seem great. Jesus would have showed up. And because John had been exalting himself, perhaps even in that day, the people around him would have not realized that Jesus is indeed far better than John. My friends, If we say anything of ourselves, let it be what God says about us. John gives us a great illustration in this. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's exactly who John was. If you would like to know text that points out who we are apart from Christ, I would point you to Romans chapter 3. And it makes very clear statements that none seek God, no one does good, not even one. Or perhaps even to point you to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You making yourself great makes Christ's work seem a little bit weaker. He didn't die to make you good. He died that dead men may live. 
The beauty of the gospel is not, that, is not how good we are and savable we are, so Jesus figured that he would go the extra 10% to make sure that we were actually redeemed. He went the entire 100%. Do not make much of yourself, make much of Jesus in your testimonies. And so the second sermon in a sentence is this. The saint, the saint's testimony should be centered on the only one who has the authority to take away the sin of the world and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Yes, I I wanted to give you the very clear illustrations, the very clear explanation of this passage. It's about John's testimony. The application is that our testimony should line up pretty close. Our testimony should be one that proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if we point out anything in ourselves, we should point out the sin that he took away. My friends, as we consider the testimony of John, as we consider the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as we consider repentance, as we consider all of the things that were surrounding John's ministry, everything he did, both in his earthly ministry, in his deeds, and in his words, pointed to one person and one person alone. It pointed to Christ. Do not be fooled. You have no other purpose here, genuinely. I'm not trying to be harsh with you. I'm not trying to um, make you feel less valuable because friends, if you need anything to confirm your value, I would encourage you to look to the cross of Christ. You were purchased at a costly price. He rescued and redeemed you that you might be his bride, that you might be his co-heir, that you might be his adopted children. Your value is placed in the person of Jesus. But do not, do not look at your value and think, I must tell people about me. Our testimonies, our redemption, our reconciliation, our salvation is ultimately the result of someone else's work. He is to be heralded. He is to be exalted. He is to be lifted up. That the saint, when they leave here, should proclaim in both their word and in their deed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because in that proclamation, you never know who God will rescue and redeem by lifting up Christ. And I would point out one more thing. When we proclaim ourselves, there's no hope for the salvation of anyone around us. We may be redeemed. We may have the grace of God in our lives, but if we simply put ourselves out there, we can't say, behold me who can take away the sin of the world, who can convert, who can change, who can sanctify. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would grow in faithfulness in your proclamation of the Lamb of God. That you would go boldly, not only to your friends, but men calling you out, love you. Your family should hear this from you. And I would encourage you to perhaps grow in jealousy a little bit. Grow in jealousy. Grow in jealousy for your children. Your children should hear from you first, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your children should hear from you to further illustrate the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So men, lead your home well by gladly proclaiming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In your workplaces, in the spheres of influence that God has has given you, my prayer is that you would grow in faithfulness and proclaiming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You never know what God may do. He may save a janitor. He may save your closest friend or family member. It matters not. We go proclaiming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because we have been enthralled and captivated by his ability to remove sin from our lives and to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And so by that grace and by the Holy Spirit indwelling us, may we be faithful to proclaim, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.